Father in heaven, you are a great, loving, compassionate Father. A Father to the fatherless, bringing lost children under your caring wings. Lord Jesus, you are the elder brother we have always longed for. Holy Spirit, you open our eyes to see the Father and the Son and soften our hearts to help us believe. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, be at work now as we hear from your word. Be at work in our hearts, in the hearts of all who hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Israel, here in this passage in Judges, was in a time of civil war. Tribes that were related by blood were warring against each other. And in this incident we just read, the Gileadites, while protecting a river crossing, asked for a password, Shibboleth. It was well known that the Ephraimites, with their accents, couldn't say the word properly, saying Sibboleth instead. It was the giveaway that you were the enemy. And saying the word wrongly meant certain death. Shibboleths are the words and beliefs that will give away whether you are friend or foe, a companion or an enemy. And today's biggest shibboleth, most certainly, is the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality. See, what you say about it and where you stand on the issue determines how our world will view you as a friend or an enemy. And when it comes to what the church and Christians have said on this topic, there's been a lot of bad press. Christians and churches' view on same-sex marriage have not been presented well, partly out of bad press coverage. I think also probably just as likely because Christians and the church have not done a good job of speaking clearly about this. And today we're asking what Jesus would say on this topic, what Jesus would say to the same-sex attracted. And in order to work that out, we've got to go back a little to the beginning of the Bible so that we can trace what the Bible has to say about human sexuality and get our bearings from there. Now, there's a lot to say here, but I do want to be brief so we don't lose the forest for the trees. We begin in point one with God creating men and women unique in all of creation. You can see that actually a bit earlier in Genesis 1 where we're told that God decides to make man in his image, in his likeness unlike anything else in creation. And we're told that both men and women are created in this way. Genesis 1.27, listen to the repetition. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice the repetition of image and creation. Man and woman are created equally, both equal in bearing the image of God. 
Now, with this creation act done, God blesses them and sits back and sees all he has done. In, in the previous days of creation, he looks on what is made and says that it is good. But today, on the sixth day, with the creation of men and women, that day is very good. Emphasis on the word very. Now, reflecting on creation of men and women, David in Psalm 8 rejoices and worships God. Psalm 8 is a meditation on these short verses and David understands that the first purpose of why God created men and women was to worship him. When David considers the creation of humanity and the role he has given them, he bursts out with praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You were created by God to joyfully worship your creator. And God also creates men and women differently. That's the point and purpose of Genesis 2. There we see that Adam recognizes that he's different from the rest of creation. We've just been told that God created everything good, but then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we hear that God sees that it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so God creates out of from him the woman, a helper, someone the same as him, yet also different at the same time someone equal to him and as an image bearer and yet also different in terms of personhood and role and life, a new gender. Adam recognizes this difference in his first words. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man because she was taken out of man. She be called woman. The writer then tells us this unique difference between men and women is what makes marriage and sex unique. The two of them distinct, and yet in marriage and sex, they become one flesh. God has created humanity to bear his image and to worship him, and he's also created them different that they might enjoy one fleshness together. But this is not the world that we live in. We live in a broken world a world of broken relationships, a world where God is not worshipped as he should be. The Bible says that the root of all that is wrong in our world is sin. Genesis 1-2 presents a good picture of God's intention and creation of humanity. But in Genesis 3, we see humanity reject this intention, take God out of the picture and take it upon themselves to create this world their way. This is sin, the rejection and the, of God and the dethroning of God. And when we get our worship of God wrong, we also get sex wrong. This is eventually what we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, chapter 3, verse 20. We're not going to read out the whole passage. Uh, we looked at it a bit earlier this year. But here's a small part from chapter 1 that shows this point. Romans 20, 1, 24 to 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Now this might be hard to hear for some of us, but in this chapter saturated with the sinful problem of humanity, Paul makes his point very clear. Because we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and because we worship the wrong thing, we get sex wrong. 
In fact, Paul says in verse 24 that it is a part of God's judgment. The disordering of our sexual desire is a part of God's judgment on our disordered worship, which is rooted in sin. On our recent holidays, our second daughter, Janessa, came down sick, probably with gastro. It was a Sunday. We, we, didn't know, we, we couldn't uh, visit many doctors, and we were a little concerned that she couldn't stomach anything, not even liquids. And so we had to drive to a hospital to find an after-hours doctor to see her. We knew that something was wrong, and we needed to find out from a doctor what was wrong so that it could be fixed. Now, if you've been struggling with same-sex attraction, or you know people who do then you know personally that something is very wrong with this world and life. Jesus is often known as the great physician, the great doctor, but his diagnosis of the problem might be uncomfortable to hear. Some people have tried to argue that because Jesus never really spoke about the topic of gender or same-sex attraction, and because Jesus spoke generally about loving others, then we can build a case that Jesus would have been for same-sex marriage. But that is massive overreach. And it's an argument built on silence. Jesus may not have spoken about same-sex attraction. He, he didn't need to. It was never an issue to be debated in his time. But what he does speak clearly on is sexuality and marriage. So if you have your Bibles there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19 and read with me. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's a few things going on here in this passage. The Pharisees in their cynicism towards Jesus are testing him. Their main issue is how Jesus would interpret what they're asking in verse 3 with the little phrase, for any cause. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Like looking at another man, or as one rabbi even taught, burning his dinner. You could divorce your wife for, for having burnt dinner. Jesus' response was to appeal to the creation story which came before the laws that Moses gave on divorce. And then he goes on to talk about the nature of divorce and why Moses allowed it in the law. Long story short, the Pharisees wanted to test Jesus to see if he would fail. And Jesus turns the tables and shows that they are the ones failing. But the main point for us today is right there in verses 5 to 6. Jesus affirms monogamous heterosexual marriage as God's intention. 
And because this was God's creation and because it's such an intimate union between two people of the opposite sex, it was to be treated with reverence and honor. When Jesus says, what God God has joined together, let not man separate, he is closing the door to easy and cheap divorce. And he's closing the door to, I think, that anyone would redefine marriage outside of monogamous heterosexual union between a man and a woman for life. Now, we can kick around the issues surrounding that, but at the heart, this is the implication of what Jesus is saying. But the bad news of Jesus' diagnosis doesn't end there. See, his apostle Paul said earlier in that Romans passage we read out that giving people over to homosexual lust was a part of God's judgment upon people for their sin. But the judgment doesn't end there. See, at the end of time when Jesus returns, God will judge and reject everyone who is unrepentant in their sin. These are his words in the book of Revelation, chapter, 25, chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers, that is the one who remains faithful to Jesus, will have his, this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus warns us here that those who are unrepentant in their sin will face eternal judgment. And that list includes all those who are sexually immoral, those who have misused sex outside of marriage. I saw a uh, Now This video last night on Facebook. Uh, It was shared on the 4th of July. And since the 4th of July, it's gained one and a half million views. A church in the Philippines attended a gay pride parade. It's the fourth year that they've been there. And they've been holding up placards apologizing to the LGBT community. There were some nice sentiments when you actually read that sign. There are some actually nice sentiments in there. But the thing that got me was that the pastor in this video was quoted as saying that Jesus would never condemn anyone with same-sex attraction. He would welcome them and love them. That's kind of hard to square with Revelation 21. I think it sounds like that pastor is trying to be more loving and kind than Jesus. Does this mean then that Jesus is just harsh with sinners, especially those who are same-sex attracted? I mean, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction and all you've heard in your life is condemnation from the church, are Jesus' words here so far only just heaping up more condemnation? Here is where I want to say that what Jesus has to say in this issue is so much more wonderful and complex and nuanced. Too often we've heard a black and white message on this topic, but I think Jesus would have tackled this issue in a way that would have surprised us 
And I get this from looking at the passages we read out today, John 8 and John 4. Both of these passages do not refer to same-sex attraction or homosexuality, but both of them give us an insight into how Jesus would have engaged with someone who is same-sex attracted. Let me explain. First, we turn to John 8. There we find a woman who is caught in adultery and is brought before Jesus and an angry crowd ready to stone her to death. That is the penalty under the law of Moses for anyone who is caught in adultery. Notice, however, in the story that the man is missing. It usually takes two people to commit adultery. So something fishy is already going on. This seems to be another test, a test of whether Jesus will show compassion on this woman and therefore break the law of Moses. Reflect for a moment on the shame that this woman must have been feeling. She's just been caught in adultery. Her moment of lust has been now exposed and is now just not exposed, but brought into the public space. She is standing before a crowd and Jesus himself with her sin on full display. The shame she must have experienced. The humility of her sins on display. Shame and humility. Are these not the the same things and the same feelings and experiences that same-sex attracted people feel about their own battle? Jesus' response is to stoop down and start writing in the sand with his finger. We're We're not told in John what he's writing. One commentator made a lovely connection, however, that the only other time we hear of God writing anything with his finger is in Exodus. When Moses is up on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, we read of God with his finger writing the Ten Commandments into the tablets. And here is Jesus, God in the flesh, writing with his finger. Perhaps he's writing out the Ten Commandments in the sand, which would make sense because as the Pharisees continue to ask what Jesus is going to do, his answer completely subverts their expectations. He replies, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at that, he bends down to continue writing. When you think of the Ten Commandments there, the basic list, and Jesus saying, if you've not broken any of these, throw the stone. One by one, they all slink away until only the woman and Jesus are left alone. Now, the point here is not that you need to be perfectly sinless in order to administer justice. The point here is that you need to have grace and compassion Otherwise, you will only have the heartless hypocrisy of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted justice. They wanted to trip Jesus up, but they have zero grace. They have zero humility. They have zero compassion. Where there is no grace, no humility, and no compassion, you cannot have true law-keeping, and you cannot have true justice. What Jesus says and does in this little exchange is re-establish justice on the grounds of grace. Sometimes churches have been guilty of this. Guilty of condemning and judging others without grace and compassion for them. And if you have received that, and if you have experienced that, I am so sorry. Whether it be here at our church or at another church, It is not right. It is the evil spirit of the Pharisee at work. Instead of showing grace, compassion, and love, Christians can act out of fear 
They are imperfect sinners and they will sometimes act in sinful ways. And I am so sorry if you have ever had to deal with that. The story here in John 8 finishes with Jesus telling the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you, so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. He's saying to her, your life has been saved by grace. You deserve to be judged for your sin, but I have saved you by grace. So now your life is being reestablished on the basis of this experience of grace. Don't commit adultery anymore. Not because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and you have been rescued by grace. So what would Jesus say to the same-sex attracted if he met them? He would say to those feeling the shame and humility of their sexual desire, he would say, I do not condemn you. Go and turn away from this sin, not because you fear condemnation, but because you have met me and you have been rescued by grace. Jesus has compassion and grace for all of us, no matter what our sin. The next story, I think, also shows how Jesus would have engaged with someone with same-sex attraction. John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling around for his ministry And he chooses to go through Samaria. It's about midday. And he finds himself at a well, thirsty for a drink. He meets a Samaritan woman. Long story short, Samaritans believe they worship God, but they were hated by the Jews. And the hatred ran deep and long. Jews treated them as second-class people. Being hated, feeling like an outcast, and and being treated like second-class people. That's the experience that echoes as well, the struggle, those who struggle with same-sex attraction. It's an interesting conversation. I wish I had more time to delve into the details of it, but the main movements in the conversation begin with a discussion over drinking water. Jesus offers this woman water that will never make her thirsty again. He is promising to eternally satisfy her. She wants it, but then in verse 16, Jesus switches subjects and starts delving into her personal life. I mean, what's going on here? When you're in conversation with someone, you know, someone you've just met, one of the first things you don't talk about is their love life and their sex life. Uh, So what is Jesus doing? I think part of the key is understanding what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18 about her relationships. Uh, He says, come call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right in saying I have no husband, no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what this means. And I think actually the most helpful thing I've read is that the word husband in Greek can actually also just be translated as man. So there could actually be a wordplay going on here. Right? He says to her, you have no husband. That's right, you have no husband. You've actually had five men. And the man that you're currently with now is not your husband. You see that Jesus is saying she's gone from man to man to man. She's a serial fornicator. She has wrapped her identity around sex and relationships. This also explains why she's alone at midday, the hottest part of the day at the well. Normally people go to the well in the cool of the evening to draw out water. She is too ashamed to do that. She has wrapped her identity around her lovers. And so she, 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 she gets confronted with that. 
And so she switches the conversation topic to worship. She's probably speaking better than she realizes as well. She has worshipped relationships and sex, and now she wants to talk to Jesus about true worship. So Jesus gets to the heart of it all. He is the one that she has truly been waiting for. And true life is found in worshipping Jesus in spirit and truth, the truth of the gospel enabled by the Holy Spirit. What you worship is what you will wrap your identity around. And Jesus would say to you, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, do not wrap your identity around your sexuality. Wrap your identity around me, and I will give you what you have longed for, and I will satisfy you eternally. I am looking for people to worship me, and you can only do that if I am the center of your being. And this goes not just for the same-sex attracted, but for all of us. What you worship is what you will wrap your identity around. Studies, career, status, power, money, family. What is it that you worship? See, the message from the Bible and the message from Jesus today is that we've, been called, we've all been created by God as sexual beings. But when Adam and Eve rejected God and sinned against him, they disfigured their worship and they ended up disfiguring sex. Sin brings judgment upon us. And part of God's judgment is to simply just give us over to the things that we want, including same-sex attraction. Eternal judgment, however, also awaits any sinner who does not repent. But Jesus has come, and he's come not to condemn, but to save. He has come not to affirm, but to transform. He has come not to reject, but to welcome and satisfy anyone who repent turn to him, believe that he can and does save them, and trust him for their eternal lives. So what does this all mean? For those who are same-sex attracted here, the first thing you need to see is the brokenness of what this world offers. In the 1960s, the sexual revolution swept through the world. And it promised the joy of sex without the responsibility of marriage and children. It's been a disaster. People have always sinned with sex. But after the sexual revolution, it became more open, more widespread, more promoted, and more accepted. And in its wake are broken families and broken lives. Everything the sexual revolution promised has not happened and will not happen because we are sinful people who worship the wrong thing. And when you worship the wrong thing, you will inevitably get hurt along the way. And you also need to see that same-sex marriage has not delivered what it promised. And it's unlikely to as well. It promised acceptance and freedom from guilt. But statistics from countries like Sweden, which has had same-sex marriage for decades, show that mental health issues and suicide rates for married same-sex couples have not changed since the legalization of same-sex marriage there. A few brave commentators have noted that something more than just the stigma of same-sex attraction is at work. Let me suggest the Bible's answer. It's the shame that we feel for sin. It's God's way of showing us in hard ways that this is not right. 
and he feels the pain of it. We're told in the Bible that Jesus has come into this world just like us and experienced every degree of temptation that we have experienced. And he's, Jesus knows what you're going through. And he offers you something so much better. The world offers you water, but you have to keep coming back to it to drink. Jesus is offering you living water that will satisfy you eternally. See the brokenness of what this world offers and see the eternal satisfaction that Jesus offers and come to him. Point two, see that same-sex attraction does not disqualify you forever as though you have committed the unpardonable sin or that your feelings and emotions are so wrecked that Jesus couldn't do anything with you. We are created as sexual beings. Therefore, same-sex attraction is a sin which hits us right at the heart of who we are, sexual beings. It's not that God made you this way and now condemns you. It's that God made you a sexual person, but sin twists that in such a personal way, and it's heartbreaking. But it does not make you damaged goods forever. God can take any sinner who repents. Jesus is seeking them out. There is no sin so big that Jesus has not died for it. We are never accepted by God on the basis of our merits or our good works or anything that we've done. No experience of temptation, no matter how unrelenting it is, can forever separate us from God. We come to him on the basis of his grace. We are saved not because we deserve it, but because God is compassionate and gracious. So the only unforgivable sin is to keep rejecting this offer from Jesus. So come to him. But know that coming to him is costly. Our world is constantly trying to convince. So our world's constant and convincing message is that you must accept your sexual orientation as your identity. We live in an age of authenticity. The one unalterable law and command in our world is to live what is authentic to you and does not harm anyone else. And if you're not living what is authentic to you, then you're living a lie. You're living someone else's life. And if you break this command or if you preach a different message, then you will feel the wrath of this world. A few months ago, I read the story of a gay journalist in New York who came out. He didn't come out as gay. He was already he already came out as gay, but he came out as a Donald Trump supporter, sort of. He didn't support everything Donald Trump was saying, but he had written an article saying that much of the criticism and hatred thrown at Donald Trump and his supporters was actually damaging the credibility on, of his side. Well, the reaction to that article was swift. When he went to his local gay bar, he immediately noticed people avoiding him. It was as though a circle of space had enveloped him and nobody was breaking through it. One of his closest friends came up to him and said, I can't believe you wrote what you did. You are not welcome here anymore. Now, following Jesus is going to be like coming out in support of Donald Trump, only it's worse. Because when you follow Jesus, you have to do something that fundamentally goes against what our world preaches. It's to change the center of your identity. 
Following Jesus will mean that same-sex attraction will no longer define who you are. Jesus will now define it. It's a part of what Jesus means when he says that to follow him means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You will need to deny what this world has so often convincingly argued, that your sexual attraction is who you are. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not. And wrapping your identity around your sexual attraction has often and will always lead to disappointment, hurt, and shame. And if by some chance you avoid that, it will lead to eternal disappointment and eternal shame when God judges. I say this not to scare you. And I don't say this to bully you. I say this out of genuine love and concern. I say this because I believe, as with most Christians for the past 2,000 years, that Jesus not only came to this earth and died on a cross, but that he rose back to life again. And I believe, because of his resurrection, what the Bible says about that, that Jesus is now King and Lord of this world and of you and me. Following Jesus is worth it. It's not about the great rewards at the end, though there is that. It's also about finding your true identity, worth, value, security, and significance in this life. And that's a message for all of us. If you are searching for security and significance, value, worth, and identity in anything other than Jesus and his gospel, you will be disappointed, either in this life or in the life to come. Jesus promises what this world does, life, abundant life, and life to the full. But only Jesus can satisfy because his promise is based on his resurrection. So to those struggling with same-sex attraction here, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then that changes everything. And it makes pursuing Jesus worth it. For the non-same-sex attracted here, what does this message uh, mean today? Let me focus on two areas uh, of how we should respond when someone comes out to you. And I'm taking these points primarily from Sam Albury's excellent book, Is God Anti-Gay? First thing, thank them. Thank them for being so open and having the courage to speak and for trusting something so personal to you. It's a massive privilege to be told such things. Secondly, assure them that their fears of being rejected by you, and that's a real and genuine fear, is unfounded. One of my high school friends, uh, one of my close high school friends, came out as gay towards the end of of, of our uni days, but she never told me. I found out later from another mutual friend that she was afraid of telling me because I was a Christian. We've since lost touch, but I think about that a lot and it still hurts. And it hurts because I never got the opportunity to assure her that my love for her as a friend was never going to change. Knowing that they are gay should not mean that you stop liking them or being their friend. Thirdly, listen to them. There might be a time to share your Christian view on sexuality and be prepared to share that in a loving, winsome way But maybe this is not the time. Gently ask them questions about their story, how they came to realize these things about themselves, what reactions they have received. Are they doing okay? 
Find out more about their story and its ups and downs. Listen. Be the shoulder to cry on. See, the more you hear them and take time to deepen your friendship with them, the more likely they are to ask questions of you as a believer. And finally, pray for them. The more you hear their story, the more you will know how to pray for them. Pray for God to reveal his goodness in Jesus to them. And also pray for yourself to be a faithful friend who can show them the goodness of Jesus. So thank them, assure them, listen to them, and pray for them. After this, pastoral care is crucial. There will be feelings of loneliness and isolation. So be mindful and care for them, especially if a Christian, someone in church, comes out to you and says that they're struggling with same-sex attraction. This is important for all of us, especially those who are older. And a lot of you guys will be getting older too. Be the loving father and mother figures that are often missing in the lives of those who struggle with same-sex attraction. It's fairly well documented, um, especially for men, that those who wrestle with same-sex attraction also have to deal with an absent father. In my 17 years that I've been here at this church, I have seen three people come into our church, be a part of our community, and leave to pursue a same-sex lifestyle. And in each of these three cases, I've seen and I can see missing fathers in their lives. So if you're older, be part of the family that brings soothing healing and comfort to the brokenness of these people. Be the loving father and mother figure. Be the loving and brother uh, be the loving brother or sister. Recognize that sexual temptation will not or may not go away, even for those who decide to follow Jesus. It is a particular sin, but also be careful not to make it the major and central sin in their lives, right? Jesus tells them not to define their lives by their sexual desire, so we should be careful not to define them this way as well. But recognize that these temptations and these desires, they're not going to go, they may not go away. Uh, ben has helpfully included an article in the pastor's desk from Vaughan Roberts, who himself is a minister of the gospel and struggles with same-sex attraction. And he's clear that in the majority of cases, these desires don't go away. So keep listening to them and making it easy to talk about. I know some of us feel uncomfortable about this subject. We'd rather not talk about it, rather talk about something else. But that's something that we need to pray for ourselves. That we should act in love and that God would give us the courage to get out of our comfort zones in order to love and care for others. We need to honor singleness in our churches and be better at it. See, those who struggle with same-sex attraction, even after following Jesus, may not have those desires removed and they may be called to singleness in Jesus for the remainder of their lives. We are sexual beings, but in Jesus, our sexuality is not the center of our lives. Jesus is. And so we should honor singleness openly. Yes, yes, we celebrate weddings and engagements, but we want to avoid giving the impression to people that unless you're married or in a relationship, something's wrong with you. So let's quit 
the joking about new couples. Let's quit the joking and the questions about why some people aren't married yet. Let's instead keep our eyes focused on the mission together and keep encouraging those who are single to keep using their gifts and to include them in our families and our friendships. Lastly, please, please be careful what you post on social media. Many of us have hundreds of friends on, online on Facebook. I think the average is over 100. I know quite a few of us have over 1,000. That's just because of the people we've met online. And if you're posting things online that are driven by fear, if you're reading an article and it raises within you a fear about same-sex marriage or homosexuality, then that's your cue not to post it online. Because when you post something like that online and you've got friends who support same-sex marriage or support homosexuality or people who actually are wrestling with it, what they hear is that you are afraid of them. They are the enemy to be feared. And Jesus would say, no, we are to show them love and compassion. So please don't post these things online. Please don't forward them in WhatsApp messages or emails. And if you receive something like that from a Christian, gently rebuke them. Because we want to keep showing and demonstrating the love and compassion that Jesus has. He has hard things to say to them. But we begin from a place of love and compassion before warning them. I'm aware that so much more could be said and I want to say so much more. Uh, so let's begin the discussion there. Let me pray for now. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that you are a compassionate father, a father to the fatherless. We thank you that in your goodness and kindness, you show us great mercy and grace. We pray that you would Keep opening our eyes to Jesus, to see how wonderful and awesome he is, to see that he promises, what he promises is so much better than what our world promises. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be able to speak this gospel clearly, to be able to show love and compassion to those who wrestle with same-sex attraction, to be able to do so in ways that keep pointing to the goodness that is in Jesus. We pray for those among us who may be wrestling with same-sex attraction. Father, please grant them to see that Jesus is better. He is better than living a life of fulfilling sexual desire. And we, we pray that you'll uh, help us as a church and your body to reach out and care for them and love them. We pray for all of us to keep looking forward to the day when Jesus will return to free us from the shackles of our sin, to free us from sin, death, and pain, and wrestling and struggles, to be with you in joy forevermore. And we pray this, trusting and persevering in the gospel message, in Jesus' mighty and beautiful name.